So welcome to another episode of Web3 Disruptors. I am excited to welcome our guest this week, Gael Tamar. She is the CEO and co-founder of SolidBlock, which is a real estate tokenization company. Gael is a recognized leader in property tokenization, and she has a background that includes marketing, finance, trading, compliance, and entrepreneurship. As an early mover in the blockchain space, Gael serves at the helm of Foundation for International Blockchain and Real Estate, and as a founder of Women in Block. With over 100 blockchain speaking engagements and an educational podcast, which I had a chance to look at, Yale is recognized as top 20 prop tech influencer, top 25 blockchain and crypto speakers, and one of the top 100 women in blockchain. She's a global executive based in Tel Aviv and New York, and she leads the Solid Block team on a mission to lead real estate tokenization. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you so much, Jeanette. How are you? Yes, very well, thanks. So to kind of dive in, you've obviously done a lot. You've got this incredibly impressive background. It would be helpful for our listeners to understand a little bit about your journey. So what led you into the Web3 space and specifically into this incredible concept around real estate tokenization? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. And the story never gets old because I rediscover every time a little more color to it. But generally, I went through a lot of diff- different time, almost like an era of different types of economic regimes from one extreme to the other. So I was born in communism in the Soviet Union, went to school in high school and college in the U.S., and finished grad school. And that was more like white picket fence kind of type of work hard, uh, get a good job type of thing, pay off your loans. And then I ended up moving to Israel, which at that point was a rising startup nation. And it became later on a crypto and blockchain nation. And that's where I caught, first I caught the entrepreneurship bug after being in a capital markets industry for 12 or 15 years. And then I had a few startups in the fintech space because I have this unique combination, I guess, of both tech and financial knowledge. And uh, having worked at a broker dealer in the US, then private equity, M&A, hedge funds, structured products, very traditional background. And finally, when I left that world and I wanted to redefine what I want to do at the next stage, I discovered crypto and I fell in love with not necessarily the product and the products such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, what it was at that point, or altcoins and utility tokens, but rather the technology and the premise of cryptocurrencies even, such as allowing individuals to manage their own funds or invest as they please, and which may or may not be appropriate for every investor. But just having that opportunity is enormous. And so I started right away figuring out where's my niche. And I've been always working with securities. And so I looked at the market at the time where it was headed. And it was the end of ICOs, initial coin offerings, more or less because of the SECs and other regulators' stance on use of, use of blockchain technology to raise capital. And 
there is already a perfectly fine instrument to raise capital in the world. And in fact, it's been used for, I would argue, thousands of years. <laughs> if we look back into kind of how people gathered, so to speak, investment for either real estate or new ventures and so on and so forth, even Christopher Columbus had to fundraise for a trip the Atlantic, right? He got government <laughs> financing. But <laughs> so ultimately, my thing was securities. And I was like, wow, let's just use the same tech. Let's power this instrument. And almost everything out there, like the internet powered already existing kind of business models. Bookstores became Amazon, which is basically initially was a bookstore on steroids. Apps uh, or the phone, smartphone is basically communication device with everything in it your whole life. And when I'm thinking, wow, securities on the blockchain, what a concept. What if we could facilitate seamless trading, but compliant, right? Seamless, but compliant trading of any private security on the secondary without having to put it on these big exchanges that are super expensive, very difficult, big headache. What if any, everybody, almost everybody issues securities, like even home equity loan is securitized in some way. Like if you've got a mortgage, you're participating in the securities market. You might not issue, you're not issuing a security, mm -hmm. but so you have an asset which you're collateralizing and getting a loan. Like you are issuing, you are part of a financial product. So I'm like, everybody's a part of this market. Let's democratize it. And so that's how my journey started. Sorry for a long-winded answer there. <laughs> oh no, it was wonderful. And it was brilliant context. I mean, I specifically kind of thinking about real estate, I mean, it's ripe for disruption, right? And one of the more sort of kind of laborious processes for most people to kind of go through. It'd be good to share with our listeners almost in layman's terms, like what this means for the everyday person and why they should be excited by it. So the everyday person has different outlets for accumulating wealth and then having their wealth multiply and not lose it. <laughs> so everybody <laughs> is concerned now with inflation and how it's eating into their capital and savings and, and their everyday budgets even. And homeowners are super concerned about the prices of real estate and how that will affect them in the long term. So every, I think everybody in the world is kind of watching what's going to happen. And the experts are saying what you should do is beyond diversifying, just make sure you have like a bunch of different assets that are timeless or that some are connected to the market, some are not. Just diversify your, diversify your holdings with whatever, whichever way you can. Right. And so a lot of people have pretty much, let's say, pension, 401ks and things like that. And some have an, a, some bought property in which they live and have mortgage on. And, and that's great, but that's usually in one market, which may or may not be affected. And there's all kinds of forest majeure events. And uh, you see properties that were soaring, let's say, in the Silicon Valley and now are kind of going down in value as people are moving out. So to future-proof your holdings, you're able to invest in, obviously, a stock market is open for everybody to invest, but you can also invest in assets that have been fractionalized. And there's very, there are various funding platforms that don't even use blockchain, but have 
access to to invest in various properties out there. Now, I'm a big believer of standardizing things and kind of investing in all of these different platforms where real estate is sitting. It's, some people have these hobbies. They go around flea markets and collect things and buy things. And, and, and you might have some appraisal on one of thing or another thing, but you just never know and you have no idea where you're going to be able to sell it or just kind of sitting in your house. And so if you compare that with stocks on NASDAQ, or if you're on interactive brokers or Robinhood, it's super standardized. You have a lot of data. You know that if you bought something, you can sell it. You know the dividends that you're going to get if you are going to get them and so on, right? So even if you have a mutual fund or 401k, you know what you're expecting to get out of that more or less every year, although most people do not. So bottom line is un until we standardize these purchases or these investments in private assets, and that's all recognized. When you put things on a blockchain, public blockchain, it's standardized. Um, you know where to look for things, the information. Now blockchain is advanced a lot and it's common to include information on different financial products in what's called metadata of the smart contract. So you get all the information of on, on what's been invested that these financial products you bought, because by the way, when you fractionalize real estate, it's no longer real estate. It's now a financial product, a security. Mm -hmm. So whatever you bought out there on some website, you know, you are at the mercy of the owner of the asset to pay you dividends or interest. There is no control on, on the investor side. They have legal, uh, of course, they have legal rights to, to seek any sort of, any sort of lawsuit or anything like that if things don't go according to what they was promised, but there's just no transparency. So first and foremost, when we add tokenization, we're adding transparency, we're adding standardization, and we're adding an ability to appraise what was bought because you can compare it to other things more easily. And you're adding a possibility to transfer uh, or to sell, to resell your investment like you do with public products right now. And so that's major and that's what the market needs. And the final thing that's missing right now is resell, is brokers or kind of sales, sales force to fuel this market like you have in a public market. And that's something that SolidBlock is working on right now. So what is your vision for SolidBlock? Where do you see this really kind of going? So Jeanette, I always kind of come to almost every industry or even when I was employed, I was always looking to kind of take these existing opportunities and strengths that companies have or markets have and then insert or inject technology to make them viral, stuff like that. So like, for example, when I was working at a at the hedge fund and I was doing structured products and it was the, in 2012 enterprises were not on social media at all. Like nobody was, and there were no ads either, but there were pages. And so our institution was one of the first to have all the social accounts. I was very passionate about social media at that point, And I just basically started doing this and we were really the first and we got a lot of as more we had institutional clients and we also had high net worth clients and they were also curious 
So everybody, we got a lot of visibility instantly and uh, just because we were first. So I was always looking how to go outside the box and for value. So, and then it, we kept doing, I kept doing this as, let's say, in the marketing side of my career as a chief marketing officer in, at different ventures and innovating ways we would advertise and, and spread the word. So in this market or just in general, I know I, I have a lot of, I've read a lot about liquidity and how it's generated. And I've seen it with my own eyes from the work at the broker dealer, how deals are made to being a part of several marketplaces and an AI company that worked to translate smart contract, like natural language, build natural, build smart contracts with natural language. So a lot of these things. And what I noticed for every viral trend, be it NFT, be it utility tokens, you need a global sales force. Even bit, like Bitcoin, it's, it was obvious. The Bitcoin enthusiasts, everybody who bought Bitcoin, like, wow, you gotta, you have to buy it or you have to <laughs> disclaimer, I'm not selling anything here. But that's how things spread is, and with securities, you cannot do that because you need yeah. to be, <laughs> you need to be a compliant broker in order to, to spread the word and especially earn. Uh, right. So that was the biggest problem of the SEC of these utility tokens because people were creating pyramids and they were just selling for the sake yeah. of selling. Right. And that's still happening outside of the US right now every single day. And, and, and so what, I realized after several years in the market is that uh, unless we have a sales force behind it, that's pushing products because they're good. The products are yeah. good. And, and also because they're earning something and also they're earning something in the long term. Brokers, they earn from primary and secondary markets. So they push the product on the primary, but it's a really good product. They can still earn also by you're facilitating secondary, nah, right? Because they, they have the same investor base that's interested in this product. So that's how we came with the, came up with this idea of a distributed investment bank and growing and providing a product for broker dealers to, to come and, and add their investors to like a wholesale listing site from, of tokens and projects from all over. We don't have our own marketplace. We're not interested in that. And, and then these brokers ultimately help distribute. And for me, when I look at BlackRock, which has, if I'm not mistaken, like a crazy amount of assets under management, several trillion. And I'm looking at that as a way that it's something as an institution that single handedly can influence a whole market. They can, they can bail out a bank. A bank doesn't, the government cannot bail it out. They go to BlackRock. Like that's a huge amount of power. In hands of one institution, uh, which, by the way, right. right, and it pays its executives crazy amount of money. Not saying that they're not they don't deserve it, but imagine having a distributed investment bank with the same amount of asset under management, more e equally spread, with everybody benefiting, and of course, ultimately, who benefits from that? The asset owners and the investors, right? Those are the guys and girls that are getting. At the end of the day, much better deals from this distributed approach. 
I mean, listen, it, it sounds as though there's no doubt that you're building something that is feels like it's a bit of a rocket ship and, and very uh, sort of special and particularly how kind of passionate you are around the sort of the potential within the space. I think it's of particular note, obviously, we're in an environment where it is male dominated. And so whenever I'm speaking to female founders, I think of a time in the future where mm-hmm. you're just a founder as opposed to being right. a female founder. But right now it's sort of few and far between. And so it's also so great to have these incredible role models for the women that are coming right behind you. What advice would you give, right? So when you think about your journey to get your organization to, to this point, sure, there's been mm-hmm. some challenges and some learns along the way. What would you kind mm-hmm. of share with others that might be kind of at that similar starting point? So it's such a big subject for me in general, because I've been kind of researching what it takes to get capital, where women constantly have to prove their credibility. They don't come in through the door with all of their decorations and careers and things like that. They, with every single word, you have to prove your credibility and so on. And so like my biggest, I think not even advice, like this is what I've done to this date is just to be best at everything and constantly improve myself and listen. Because there are a lot of, on the one hand, of course, when there's negative feedback and when there is a lot of no's and rejections. And sometimes you think someone's your friend, but they actually are not. And like, there's all of these things in the entrepreneurial world. And, uh, but yeah, you do have to listen and improve. And every time I'd get like some negative feedback or something like that, I wouldn't say, okay, well, I'm not good at this. Or so how can I get better? Like, can you tell me what you think? Even if it's somebody who's really mean and I don't care, it's, it's their approach, but at the end of the day, you learn as an entrepreneur and one day sometimes what others learn in a month or a year. So just that and uh, never take no for an answer. Just always push on and, uh, and be persistent. Be- at the end of the day, your credibility is established <laughs> and, uh, and people start believing, start investing, start working with you and because you mean what you say. And you don't drop things from one, one end to the other. I noticed that women actually do have a more, a longer span and track, well, let's say track record with one venture. And for at least we're nice, anecdotally, <laughs> I don't have data on that. I mean, where men will say, okay, well, I didn't succeed here. I can start a new venture because I can raise capital easily in this new industry. So I've seen that happen a lot. So I think, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, ahead. listen, I think it's, I think you bring up so many good points. It's interesting. Our very first guest was Bridget Greenwood. Yeah. I don't know if you've uh-huh. met her before, but she's one of the co-founders for the 200 billion club. And we talked about the fundraising process mm-hmm. and she talked about the types of questions even that women are asked during the fundraising process and that men will get promotive questions and women get preventive questions. And so, and really, why does that matter? Because women spend most of the time within that pitching process defending their idea and why all the reasons why it's not going to fail. And then men are asked questions around growth and opportunity. And it's a much more sort of comes from a far more anabolic place. 
And the end result being that when you're asked these promotive questions, I think she said the stat that men raise five times as much women as yeah. women, which just makes kind of perfect sense to 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 your point. And I think there's just a lot that can be done to to level yeah. the playing field. Like it does, I do find it staggering that a man is more likely to be funded who's already got failed ventures than a first-time female entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, we can, first of all, turn around. Like, if that's true what she said, I actually view it as a good thing because when you are actually asked preventative questions, you start with a no. That's one of my favorite books by a a hostage negotiator. I'd be a hostage negotiator. It's, I think it's called Start With a No. And that was like my favorite thing ever when I read it because I realized all of a sudden, oh my gosh, like a lot of people are super polite and they will have a chat with you. They will get on the phone with you and they will be polite about it and say, wow, you've done a great job. And that will be the end of it. They'll never invest. And if people have mm-hmm. no reservations, they will not invest or do business with you. If you're on a phone mm-hmm. with a client and, and they did not ask for a discount and even worse, I, if I ever hear from somebody like, oh, your proposal is fine. The price is a reasonable, they're never going to buy. So uh, until they start yeah, no engagement, right? There's no, they're just talking to you because they have nothing better to do. So, yep, uh, right. right. So if they're coming at you with this barrage of whatever, this is fantastic because you can always tell them, okay, I clearly see this is not your, this is not something you want to invest in. And that's fine. We have a huge pipeline. So if, if you guys come back, if there's something super interesting, let's talk again in a few months. And that's, then they're, they'll be like, oh my gosh, like who mm-hmm. the hell is she? And then they're going to be interested all of a sudden because you just need to be different. And being a woman is not different enough. <laughs> In fact, in there, I understand, and I spoke to a bunch of males in the industry and in general, asking them privately why, and just, just tell, just tell me the truth because I needed to figure out my strategy and it's not something I'm going to judge you for. Like, why are you more likely to hire a woman, a, a man, let's say, or why are you more likely to invest in a man? And I did, I did get honest responses. Especially like, let's say, oh, I'm curious, same, <laughs> right? Same credentials in a man or a woman. And generally what I got is in terms of investment is that the perception was that the guy will do whatever it takes and will not quit because that's kind of in the male culture and psyche is to fight and just go whatever the obstacle is. I'm going to figure out. I'm going to follow through. And I'm going to, I'm going to get there because I have no other choice. Like I need to succeed, uh, do or die. Now, I don't know, frankly, I haven't seen statistics ab- around the do or die attitude of males versus females, but that was, that's the perception. The perception is male, males don't have any other choice. So that's what I've been working on for myself is like from my investors know that no matter what happens, the company has issues or challenges. I'm going to work. I'm going to work tirelessly to solve them and admit my mistakes mm-hmm. and say, okay, now we're doing this. Now this is how we're going to solve it and, and come to them after everything's resolved for some approvals. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It- 
I mean, it's interesting. It's always nice when you can get people to give you those really honest answers because mm-hmm. I would guess that there is no statistical data to back up that women quit on startups faster than men. And I would also say that women tend to perhaps be a little more considered and almost more risk averse to get into that venture in the first place. So I I think right after this, I'll, I'll be looking at what, I'll be trying to look at what the statistic actually is. But it's funny, isn't it? Because perception is is reality to some people. And to me, it is more so a, a, a one more reason why we need to have much more structure and data as part of this pitching process as opposed to just who knows who. That's the sort of why we are where we are, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you remember, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen the movie Joy with Jennifer Lawrence, where she's an entrepreneur who invented the magic mop or something like that? Mm-mm. Haven't seen that? Uh, it's no, a really good I, movie. I'll put it on the list. <laughs> yeah, it's a real, it's a real life story. This lady, Trudy, and she gets to an investment meeting and the investor is asking her a really crazy question is like, are you... Um, I don't remember the question, like, but I, if it comes to that, are you willing to kill <laughs> like for this uh, startup? And she's like, oh my God. And she's like, what am I going to say? And she's like, yes, I would pick up the gun or something like that. <laughs> Obviously, that's not something any entrepreneur would do unless you're on the Netflix uh, TV show in Miami <laughs> or whatever. But that's basically kind of it, right? The cutthroat. And that's how I yeah. think like yeah, women entrepreneurs right. are, the ones that I know for sure, right? So we need to change the perception around. I mean, we're having babies over here. We're going through nine months of, of hell and <laughs> and then and followed by a solid two years of no sleep. So, I mean, I definitely beg to differ around our level of resilience, that's for sure. And usually while holding down a job. So <laughs> exactly. I, and we've always got that card in the back pocket. So just to kind of wrap up, because this has been so informative, you've really given us so much to kind of think about. For women that are in the space now, what resources would you say have been kind of helpful for you? And and sort of a second part to that, do you, are you an advocate around the importance of kind of mentorship? So... The resources in terms of fundraising that I found, the number one resource is accelerators because they help gain network and credibility because now you have a whole team backing you up. They get to know you. They're open. (laughs) And the majority of them are like obviously very receptive to women. And then they introduce you. There are some that introduce you to a whole lot of investors. And so I really recommend it, especially to first-time founders. And that's basically, we were a part of several accelerators, in fact, Hold Holden, Expert Dojo, and RefTech. And they all have been, there was a fintech, well, except Expert Dojo, the other two are fintech specific. Expert Dojo, I think, is general generalist. But they all have been super helpful and introducing investors and mentoring. For mentorship, it's I, in terms of accelerators, they help you, they help really find mentors. But the issue for me back then was that you're doing so many things at the same time. You're usually extremely unfocused, even though you're trying to. 
be focused because you have to raise money and manage a company at the same time and get to results and stuff like that. And a lot of times you don't know what to ask from these mentors and how to utilize them. So you really, if you do want to get a mentor, which is absolute must, and without an accelerator, you can come to somebody and offer them and even offer to pay them even. I think pay them in options or pay them in cash. I had several advisors that were absolutely critical to my success. Mm -hmm. And I'm always good to talk to somebody who is, who's done it or has, can listen to it as an unbiased person and help you focus and do one thing at a time if you can afford it. And sometimes, by the way, I think this is a general problem with women, which I think from my uh, speaking to my friends, let's say, it's an advantage and it's a curse. Attention to detail and perfectionism. And again, not dropping things. So you kind of think, oh, I feel like every single person I didn't get back to, I feel like I feel it in my heart. Like, oh my God, in the beginning I used to, it's like, oh, I didn't get back to that person. I didn't get back. But you're getting freaking 500 emails a day and you're getting a hundred WhatsApps and whatnot. Right. So you have to be dropping things and be okay with it. And people will either understand or they will not. But you're going to focus on one thing and one thing only. Your fundraising, you're focusing on that. Everything else, just whatever. Tech team is waiting and you're paying them and they're waiting for your input. Yes, you're wasting money, but you cannot afford to do two things at a time. And that was one of the biggest lessons for me of my whole entrepreneurship journey is one thing only at a time, right? I think it's spot on. And the piece that you referenced right before that around mentors is about intentionality of why you're going into a mentor relationship. Like what exactly am I, do I need from this particular person? And I think when you go into it with that sort of mindset then and that intentionality, you really get so much more from the relationship when you people come into mentoring mm-hmm. relationships and they're very unclear what it is that they're sort of looking for and almost ends up putting yeah. a lot more work on the person who's doing the mentoring, which is should never be that way around. So yeah. I think that's really the whole thing. Solid, solid advice. Thank you Thank so, you. so much for, for joining us. For those that are listening and want to find out how they can get more of Yael and Solid Block, where can we find you? So where do you show up and where can we follow? Oh gosh, I'm everywhere. Like you can just Google me, Yael Tamar, but best to email me probably Yael at solidblog.co. By the way, I follow my own advice. I don't do social media, really. It's my team that does <laughs> my, social, gotcha. my social media. If you're uh, talking to somebody on LinkedIn, it's not me, but they will connect you to me. So that's another thing is focus. There's too many messages. And, and by the way, in terms of the w- women and training, I'm generally, actually, I'm doing the several things. One is I'm getting a law degree. I decided I'm going to get a law degree and do some pro bono work for women that may need it. And another thing is I am launching a resilience. You mentioned the word resilience, resilience coaching program, partially with AI, with methodologies from the Israeli elite units. We have, I don't know if you've seen Fauda on Netflix. That's a show about this anti-terrorist unit that, you know, blends in with wherever they are. 
and and then they go on missions and things like that. It's one of the most popular <laughs> shows out there. But also, so I'm working with with a woman who was one of the first in that unit and has tools on how they were trained wow. to right. Because when you're in the situation, the cool thing about the entrepreneur being an entrepreneur, the cool and the difficult thing is that you're you fake it till you make it. You're here and you're mm-hmm. doing it and you're making mistakes <laughs> and you're under pressure in these investor meetings, you're under the gun, but you need to be like completely unfazed, like, especially in an investor meeting, like, okay, you don't like it. No problem. I have like 10 more of you or you're in a client meeting. And the minute you're showing them some sort of emotion or excitement, like that's it game over. Like, obviously you have to be passionate. Like I'm passionate about what I'm doing, but you know, not so passionate about about you because I, because I can get like, to paraphrase Beyonce, get another you in a minute. Right. And so, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's the attachment, isn't it? Like you yeah. have to, have, you can't, you can be passionate, but you can't be attached. Exactly. And, uh, and that's the difference. Exactly. Love that it. That sounds so, so that's cool. But that yeah. sounds so cool, by the way, the program that is awesome. And yeah. we'll have to, to kind of drop some details in the show notes around that. Exactly. This is, this has truly been amazing. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So we'll probably have to reach back out and, and do a follow up with you in another six months because with the rate of things that you are powering <laughs> through, no doubt there'll be some very exciting updates. Yes. Thank you so So, much, Jeanette. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, we will see you next week for another episode of Web3 Disruptors. 